for the next um, four weeks or so, hundreds of thousands of churches across the land, millions of churches really around the world are going to turn their focus in the direction of the Christmas story. The story of Jesus coming into our world at Bethlehem. And we're going to be doing that too. We're going to be turning our attention in that direction at various points throughout the month of December. But actually, church family, we are going to be doing something more, something bigger than just that. Because the Christmas story is actually a part, and you already know this, but the Christmas story is actually a part of a much, much larger story. What we might call the story of all stories. Bethlehem is part of that much larger story. Now, by way of maybe an illustration, most of us are at least familiar, I think, even if we've never been there, we are familiar with the Sistine Chapel in Rome. Say that you at least are aware that that exists, right? The Sistine, right? Right? Considered by many to be the masterwork of the renowned artist Michelangelo, his artistry, his skill, his vision cover the walls of the Sistine Chapel. But when we hear the words Sistine Chapel, we think instantly an incredibly large work of art. Big, huge, ceilings, walls, art. But when one looks carefully, it becomes apparent that the Sistine Chapel is actually made up of many, many smaller paintings and that, are, that, that, that capture scenes from the Bible. In other words, the, the smaller paintings are part of something that is bigger, something more. And so the chapel is the big picture that brings together and holds together all these smaller paintings. So in a similar way, the Christmas story, while it is wonderful, while it is beautiful and super important, it's actually part of something much, much bigger. It's part of the story. And it is the story that we want to share and tell and retell over uh, the course of this month. Bethlehem, yes, but more than Bethlehem. And the reason we want to do this is because there are many, many people, some of whom you know. They're your friends or they're your family members. You may work side by side with them, or maybe it's, it's, it's a neighbor who's next to you. You, who, who, you know people who can tell the Christmas story with incredible precision and detail and maybe even do it better than you could. And yet they're not in a personal relationship with the living God. They have not experienced the transforming power of Jesus' death and resurrection in their life. The Holy Spirit does not live within them, and they have no church connection, nor do they desire to have a church connection. And yet they can tell you the Christmas story. And the reason that that is sadly true is because they have never truly perhaps heard or been told or been told clearly how the Christmas story fits into the much larger story, the story, the big story that God has, write, has written and is continuing to write. A story that is bigger than them, but it includes them. They don't know about that story. 
We believe, Idlewild Bible Church comes from the place of believing that God has told the story between the covers of his book. This book, the book you hold in your lap right now, the Bible. The Bible is God's story. It is his story. And in it we find our place in that story. And so this December we want to tell the story of what God has done, what God is doing, and what God is going to do. It was Augustine in the 5th century who is credited with first identifying the story that is the Bible and noting that it, you can really present the Bible, that the story that God has told, you can, you can present it in four major sections. Four major themes come out of the whole of your Bible. We could call them chapters in the story. Those four chapters, you begin with the first chapter, it's creation. The second chapter is the fall. The third chapter is the rescue. And the fourth chapter is restoration. The good folks at SpreadTruth.com, which is a parachurch organization, took this first this fifth century idea and they created this little booklet that was included in your bulletin. Did you, get, did you all get one of these this morning in your bulletin? You got it? Can I ask you to just pull that out? Pull that out. Spreadtruth.com. They're the producers of this little booklet. It's contemporary. It's attractive. Quality feel to it. It's not just like a little dinky tract. And, and it's really well done. And it, in effect, it is a powerful way, brothers and sisters, to, to share Jesus with another person. And that's why it was created. If you open it up to the first, the first just turn open the, the cover page, you'll notice that, that, that this little book that breaks out these four major themes of the Bible. Creation, addressing the question that many people have, have, which is, how did it all begin? And then there's the fall and the question of what, what went wrong? Something went wrong. And then the third Rescue takes up the cry of many, which is, man, is there any hope for this crazy world we live in? And then the restoration boldly answers the question, what will the future hold, not only for the world, but for me? What will it hold? Now, I was only recently introduced to this little booklet, but the moment that I was, I knew that it would be perfect for us for this Christmas. And I soon discovered that SpreadTruth.com has also put this little booklet into a short DVD that can also be shared with a friend if they're not readers and don't want a booklet, but maybe they'll take a look at a DVD. And so throughout this December and these weeks of December, we will show parts of that DVD and the unfolding uh, chapters as we go along. My hope, my, my prayer is that God would be pleased to use the story and our sharing of it this Christmas season to equip us to be able to better share our faith in Jesus, do it more confidently with somebody who does not yet know him, to the eternally good end that, that some would want the story to become their story. That's the goal over the course of this month. So today we step into the first chapter of the story, And that means we step into creation and the question, how did it all begin? No other parts of the story are going to make any sense if we don't 
understand this part. It's really critical. It's, it's foundational. It's the first chapter, so to speak. So let's, let's play the first part of this, this DVD that accompanies this little booklet and just get a feel. There is only one story that answers life's most essential questions and gives a lasting sense of purpose and meaning. It's the story that inspires all other stories. It's the true story that defines every one of us. This is that story. How did it all begin? Like all stories, this one begins in the beginning with the author, who is God. He spoke everything into being. With a word, galaxies appeared with stars and planets. Earth was designed for life to flourish. Everything God made was gloriously good and breathtakingly perfect. The highlight of God's creation was the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. God entrusted everything he created to his beloved children, giving just one rule. They were not to eat fruit from a specific tree. They lived in loving obedience, worshiping God as their heavenly father, and enjoying perfect harmony with creation, each other, and God. Well, that is chapter one of the story in about a minute and 13 seconds. We're going to expand on that together now for just a little while. The first chapter of the story is what? It's creation, isn't it? It's creation, which addresses the question, how did it all begin? All of it, all of this, you and and me and the human race and the animal and the plant kingdoms and, and the earth and the universe, how did it all begin? No other part of the story makes sense if we don't start here and understand that the story has an author who is the creator God of all that exists. The story begins with God. And in fact, those are the exact words of the first paragraph in this little booklet you have under creation. It's exactly what it says. The story begins with God who has always been. And church family, that is precisely where the Bible begins in the opening verse of the very first chapter of the Bible in the book of Genesis where your Bible is open now. Are you there with me? You are? Okay, great. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. How does it read? Well, it doesn't read once upon a time. Nor does it read in a galaxy far, far away. Right? How does it begin? Let's read it together, church, right off of the screen. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created. That's how it begins. This sentence, this one sentence, just... Ten words in length describes the beginning of time and all that exists in the physical material realm, the realm that you and I live in and feel and touch. And this one verse reveals a staggering amount about the nature and character of the God who made it all. Genesis 1.1 is God's personal introduction, his, his prelude to all that is going to come after it. It's the first impression of himself that God offers up to us. He introduces the story by saying, in effect, hello, I am God. 
In the beginning, I created all that is, all that ever was, and all that will ever be. I created it. Now notice there's no effort whatsoever made by God in verse 1 to explain himself, to explain his existence or his his being, his nature. He, He just is. And that's the next sentence in that paragraph in your little booklet. He has always existed, and he has always existed exactly as he is now. If it seems confusing, it's because he's beyond what any of us can fully comprehend. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? He's infinite God, neither obligated nor compelled to explain himself. We couldn't understand him if he tried to explain himself. He's too big. He wanted to create a story, and so he did, because he's God. Right? Well, that's, that's the first impression God gives us about himself. And first impressions, as we all know, are often lasting impressions. So why does God choose to introduce himself to us in this way, the way he does in verse 1 of Genesis chapter 1? Well, I don't think that's a mystery. That's not really a hard question to answer. God desires to establish right up front from the beginning that there is no one and nothing that is greater than him that you and I can know or experience or look to or believe in or call out to or trust or desire. There's no one, nothing greater than him. He is it. Any place we look, any direction we turn other than him will bring us to something that is less than him. And that's what he's telling us in this verse. He is, say it with me, church, he's God. And he wants us to understand and know him as our creator, our maker, strong, powerful, and infinitely more than anything or anyone else that is. And that is why he establishes this for us by linking his name, God, which is in the Hebrew is the word Elohim, meaning strong one. He links his name to his role as the creator. He's not a creator. He is the creator. In the beginning, God, the strong one, created. Elohim created. And did you know that this this word created, it literally means to make out of nothing. It's a very specific Hebrew word, ex nihilo, out of nothing. It's only used of God in the Bible. It is not used about of people. It's not used about you and me making stuff because it's only God who can make something out of nothing. That's right. You and I, we take and we make but we always make from something that already exists, right? We, we, we might manipulate it. We might reform it. We might mold it. We'll, we'll modify it. But we're using material that already exists. None of us ever truly created something from nothing. We don't have it what it takes for that. And, and really, that's the point. We lack the power. We lack the capacity. But God, on the other hand, he does create from nothing. 
In fact, the Holy Spirit gives us a little bit of additional insight into that truth from Genesis 1.1 when the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament describes God's creative action in this way in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 3. If you take a look at it on your note page or on the screen as well, we'll put it up there for you. By faith, we, all of us, we understand that the universe was what? Created how? By the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. How strong and powerful is God? Well, he created the universe from nothing, and he didn't use his hands or anything else. He just what? He just spoke it. He just exercised his will and everything that you and I know and all that we don't know came into being. He created it by his word. The theory of evolution. We've all heard about the theory of evolution, right? It holds that no one plus nothing equals everything. Now look at that. Look at that equation and tell me if that makes any sense to you. No one plus nothing equals everything. You know, even a small child would go, huh, right? I don't understand. That's right. We don't understand. Watches have watchmakers, and, and paintings have painters, and designs have designers, and creation has a? Yes. Three years ago, a film came out that told the story of the life of Stephen Hawking. Are you familiar with him, with his name at least? And a little bit about him, British theoretical physicist, widely viewed as one of the most brilliant uh, minds on the planet at this time. And so this movie is a biography of, of Stephen Hawking, and, and it portrays him as falling in love and then being struck by a, a debilitating form of ALS that leaves him virtually paralyzed in, in a wheelchair. He's, he's still alive, but bound by that wheelchair, he can hardly move. But the other thing this movie does is it presents what has become the life pursuit of Stephen Hawking. How he, how he takes his brilliant mind and his mathematical genius and his astrophysical knowledge and, and he's trying to come up with, with one thing that explains everything. That is the passion of Stephen Hawking's life. One mathematical formula that explains everything in the universe. So do you know what the name of the movie was? The Theory of Everything. Right. The Theory of Everything. Church family, I would submit to you that Genesis 1-1 really does answer the pursuit of Stephen Hawking. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. God created. That's the theory of everything, isn't it? Only it's not a theory. It's the truth. Before God reveals anything about himself, and there is so much to reveal because he is an infinite God, he chooses to introduce himself to us as the incomprehensibly great, strong, powerful creator, God Elohim, who has no equal. 
And his logic in starting here with us in Genesis 1.1 is absolutely flawless as we would expect that it would be. Because just by giving us 1.1 of Genesis, there are so many other aspects of, and dimensions of his person that we can, we can just deduce, we can just conclude from what we're told in verse 1. On your note page, I've listed just a few of these, hardly an exhaustive list, but, but maybe uh, enough to just help us begin to catch a sense of things. For example, if God is the creator God, as Genesis 1.1 says he is, then we know that he must be transcendent. Now, that's a big word. We don't use that every day. But transcendent, what does it mean? Well, it simply means that he is infinitely more than his creation. And he is distinct or separate from his creation. He's not, as some religions claim, Buddhism and and Hinduism and others, he's not folded into his creation so that that the creation is is God. He, He made creation, but he is not the creation that he's made. He transcends creation. He's not the trees. He's not the rivers. He's not the butterflies. Rather than being a part of his creation, God is above it and God is outside of it. Creation invites all of us to to look at it and say, man, something really big did that, right? Something bigger than that did that. You can just look at creation and know there's a God. There's a God. He transcends. And then since God is our strong and powerful creator, then he must be outside of time, right? We can conclude that from verse 1. He transcends time. He's not bound. He's not constrained by time. When we read, in the beginning God created, we realize that he created the beginning. He created time. And if he created time, then he must be before time, right? He has to be. Psalm 90 verse 2 says it this way. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are what, church? You are God. The only thing we're aware of that is outside of time is eternity. And we deduce rightly that God, not limited by time, lives where? In eternity. He lives in eternity. No beginning, no ending. And also from Genesis 1.1, if God is transcendent and if he's outside of time, then he cannot be confined by what exists in the world of matter and physical creation. He can't be limited by the physical world like you and I are limited by this world. He can't be, done, can't be limited that way because he's outside of that. He is beyond the heavens and the earth. We're unable to enter into anything beyond the heavens and the earth because that's the space we live in. We exist in this space. Yet there's a delicate balance here that God achieves because while not limited by our world and by space, he does not hesitate to enter into our world, does he? Right? He doesn't hesitate to get in and get his feet dirty as it were. He comes in the form of Jesus, steps right into our world. Check out God's own statement about himself out of Jeremiah 23. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? 
Can a man hide himself in a secret place so that I cannot see him? No, I see him. I'm right here. I can look at him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth? God is transcendent, but he's also imminent. That means he's near. Jeremiah could have said, God is here. God is there. God is everywhere. He's a big God. We can also conclude from the fact that God is our strong creator, that he's a God of order. He's not a God of chaos. In fact, we order as a race of people, we order our lives around the order that God created. 24-hour days, seasons, sunrises, sunsets, God's laws are what we count on. We depend on them for life, don't we? Because our God is a God of order. There would be no science without God's order. Mathematics. Who came up with mathematics? God did that. The subatomic particles that make up an an atom and then the atoms form molecules that adhere to one another and make solid matter. Who came up with that? A God of order did that. That is not the product of a big bang, right? That just produces chaos. No. A strong, powerful, ordered creator. He did that. And with order we deduce that this creator God named Elohim must be infinitely intelligent. God will say through the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord, as the heavens are higher than the earth. So are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And we all say, amen to that. Amen. Another way to say this is that no matter how much we know, there will always be more to know because we can never out-know God. You know? Right? And from what we observe from the heavens and the earth that God has made, clearly he's not a frugal God, is he? Oh, man, he is an extravagant God. When he created, he could have made just one star. Two, three, maybe. Two or three stars in the sky, and, and we, would know, we wouldn't know anything different. Oh, okay, three stars. Great. What does God do? Billions. Trillions. Gazillions of stars. What kind of God is that? That's an extravagant God, isn't it? He could have made the whole world in monochrome. Black and white. But what does God do? Well, he layers colors on top of colors on top of colors, no less than 16 million different colors. Why? Because he loves color. And he's an extravagant God. Flavors. Everything could have tasted like Brussels sprouts. I mean, everything, right? Steak, lobster, you name it. It could all taste like that. Unless you like Brussels sprouts. I guess we should pray for you then. But All those flavors, extravagant creator God, right? No two zebras alike. No two fingerprints that are the same. You and me, none of us 
like another person who has ever existed before, who will ever exist again. You are unique. There's only one of you ever. Why? He's an extravagant God. So just from this opening introduction to the story, we can know that God is transcendent. He is timeless. He is omnipresent. He is ordered. He's intelligent. He's extravagant. That's not a bad start to a story. God's story. But we learn something else from verse 1 as well. We learn that God's name here, Elohim, is plural. I don't know if you knew that or not. We've talked about this in the past. A few years ago we did a study on the names of God, so we spent some time here. Elohim is plural. Now that's not apparent in an English translation, but this Hebrew name is not singular like your name or my name. My name is not Tim's, plural. My name is Tim because I am just one person, right? But the word Elohim is actually the plural form of the Hebrew singular word for God. Elohim would normally be translated God's, plural. But in this case, it is not. In fact, it is never translated this way when referring to the creator God. Never singular, always plural. Now, church family, why would God put his name in a plural form? Trinity, yes, absolutely, the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right out of the blocks from the very first verse of the Bible, the very first sentence of the story, God wants us to know that he is one God and he is in three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's a plural being even as he exists as one God. Now, now how does that work? <laughs> exactly. I don't know how that works. I just know that it does because God said that it does. Now we see this plurality of the one God almost immediately here in Genesis chapter 1. In verse 2, God's creative symphony is about to begin. He's about to start creating in chapter 1. But the verse, verse, verse 2 says, The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. So we have God the Father, we have God the Spirit. And then when Jesus is revealed in the New Testament, a very powerful set of verses comes out of Colossians chapter 1 that tells us about the second person and his creative involvement in our world. Look at these words describing Jesus. For by him, Jesus, all things were what, church? They were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. Not for you and me, ultimately. It's not about us. It's about him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So not only does Jesus make everything, he keeps it together right now. So literally from the beginning of the story, from the very beginning, from Genesis 1-1 on, we are let in on the truth that gives sense and purpose and direction to everything else that's going to follow. There is one all-powerful, infinitely transcendent creator God who has made everything that exists, seen or unseen, visible or invisible, material or spiritual, who in his essence exists in a plurality of three distinct persons. He is the one who is the author of 
the story. All of that from Genesis 1-1. Is that cool? That's very cool. Now, if God makes everything that exists, then that automatically means that he made who? All of us. He made you and he made me. If he made everything, that is true. He made you and me. And that is where the rest of Genesis chapter 1 takes us. Over the course of six days, we're told, God brings out of nothing all that is, all that we have ever known. And so we kinda, we're not going to read through this chapter, but, but let's just highlight the moments. On the first day, the earth has no defined form. It is dark. And God moves back and forth by his spirit until he makes a separation between light and darkness. On day two, the author adds sky above the water. And on day three, land appears and vegetation and seed producing plants take root and they cover the land. And then God adds the sun and the moon and the stars on day four, again with nothing but a word. And from nothing. He makes it. On day five, he creates the fish of the sea that that populate the earth's oceans and rivers. The, the, The birds as well find their place in the sky on day five. And then on day six, God puts the animals, all the animals, on the land that he has created. This is spectacularly impressive. So much so that Job 38 verse 7 actually says, the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. That's a statement about the angelic realm singing while God is creating all of this stuff. Angels are singing and praising God. But, but church family, this is just the prelude. This is just the introduction. This is just the, the warm-up to the real creative act of God. Before day six draws to a close, God makes mankind the pinnacle of his creative expression. And look at what he says if you take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Then God, Elohim, said, let, what? what's the next word, church? Let us make man in our image after our likeness all of that is plural why because it's the trinity that is creating so god created man in his own image in the image of god he created him male and female he created them god wants us to understand something he wants to understand that we're different from everything else that he's created in the story The human race, you and I, are the passion of his creative expression. And and it's just incredible when you stop and think that God made all of this so that we would have a place to live. I mean, mean, you you look through the, the Hubble telescope and you see 200 billion galaxies, not stars, but galaxies, or you look through an electron microscope and and you see the, the atomic building blocks of our world and you say, all of that you made so that I could live in it. That's pretty incredible. I mean, that's, 
That's beyond our ability to comprehend. God does that. He, he makes mankind, and we're told in, verse, in chapter 2 that he places this man and woman that he's made in a garden. And when God made the first man and the first woman who are, from whom we're all descended, God didn't just make another animal. He made an image bearer, verse 27 says. And God, as he tells the story, makes sure we get that, that you and I are image bearers of the one and only creator God. And what that means is that as, as God made mankind, forming him from the dust, as chapter 2 tells us, while the clay is still wet, God figuratively presses into Adam and into Eve his own moral, rational, emotional, and spiritual fingerprint. He gave aspects of his own person, his own nature to them and in turn to us. He didn't give that to any other part of creation, not to the animals on the land, the birds in the air, the fish in the ocean. None of them have the image of God in their person, but you do and I do, just us. And he did this so that he could have a relationship with us that was unique from all the rest of creation, real and personal. Infinite God wanted to love, and he wanted to relate to a unique creature that bore the imprint of himself and could relate to him and love him back. That's what he wanted. That's the story. And we know this is what God's heart was because in chapter 3 of Genesis and verse 8 we read, And they, Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. In other words, it was God's practice daily to walk in the garden with Adam and Eve, the image bearers, and enjoy communion with them and fellowship with them and an authentic relational love with them. That was his practice. That's what he did. That's why he made us, was for relationship. This is all captured in that little booklet again on that set, that page when you open up the cover, uh, right there in the middle paragraph. Of all the beauty he created, the masterpiece was a man and a woman. God made Adam and Eve in his image to reflect him. They were created with the grand purpose of worshiping him by loving him, serving him, and enjoying relationship with him. That's why you were made. That's why I was made. To have relationship with the maker. In verse 28 of chapter 1 of Genesis, we're told that in addition to God's creative intent that he would have a relationship with us, he says, I want you to populate this world that I've made. That's what I want you to do. That's part of what I'm going to ask you to do. And he says, I'm also going to make you to serve and caretake the creation. This amazing world. I want you to steward what belongs to me. To care for it well, you care for the world that I have made. That's verse 28 of chapter 1. And so there's this incredible, impossible to imagine harmony between God and, and man, Adam and Eve. This, 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 in the world, there's, there's, there's no death. There's no sickness. There's no famine there's no disease it's harmony it's peace it's perfect it's heaven on earth and then if you flip your note page over in this first chapter then of the story called creation here being that chapter 
we learn that it is all good. All good. Many times in Genesis 1 we read those words, don't we? Verse 4, and God saw the light and it was what, church? It was good. Verse 10, and God saw that it was good when he created on day 2. And and then verse 12, and God saw that it was good. And verse 18, God saw that it was good. And verse 21, and God saw that it was good. And verse 25, God saw that it was good. What do we conclude? It was all good. Right? It was good in an unimaginable way. Did you ever notice, though, when you get to verse 31 of chapter 1? God creates man and woman, and good doesn't work anymore. And God saw everything that he had made after creating the image bearers, and behold, it was very good. Very good. And there was evening and morning the sixth day. How many times do we wake up in the morning and we look in the mirror and we say, oh, this is not good. (laughs) Right? But when God looks at his image bearers, he says, this is very good. This is very good. However, we've all read ahead in the story, haven't we? We've all read ahead. And what was very good will break the Creator's heart in chapter 3 of Genesis. And that will be the second part of the story, which, Lord willing, we will get to share next time. So, church family, from the opening chapter of the story, can I just send you out into your week with the truth, with one truth this morning, beyond the, the whole idea of God the Creator, of you and me, the image maker, makers of us. Beyond all of that, can I, can I send you into your week with the truth of, of Elohim ringing in your ears and beating in your heart? Elohim. It's God's name as our strong, powerful, infinitely more creator God. Deuteronomy 10.17 expresses it well. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Amen? That's who He is. Sometimes we find ourselves doubting God's ability to take on the stuff in our lives. The really big stuff, we think, in our relationships, our marriages, our parenting, our work, our health, or whatever it is. And we love Him. It's not a question of whether we love God or not, but there are times when we, when we, we doubt what He could do. I wonder what he thinks, having given us Elohim to know him by. This name that is so packed with with power, creation power, transcendent, infinitely more power. And then we doubt him when it comes to being able to take care of us. What does he think about that? You know, when an angel came to a a young teenage girl in Nazareth in the first century and said that she would bear a child though she was a virgin and that this child would be the Son of God, his name would be Jesus, Mary wondered, how could this possibly happen? How? That defies everything that I know. It breaks all the rules. There's no precedent for this. 
Luke 1, 37 and 38. And the angel said to Mary, for nothing will be what? Impossible with God. With God. Elohim. That's the word. No surprise the angel would use this name. Elohim. And Mary said, verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Brothers and sisters, whatever situation you're facing today, whatever challenges you're trying to overcome, whatever fear wants to own you today, you need to remember this name. You need to remember this name. Elohim. Call on your creator God by name. He doesn't need existing material to do his work. He doesn't need logic or anything else. He just does what he wants to do. And he's your God. His name is Elohim. Too often we get hung up on trying to figure out the answers to the stuff that's going on. We just need to stop. We need to stop and remember the name. Elohim. He can create a universe out of nothing. He made you. You're certainly not going to bring to him anything in your life that's going to cause him to break out in a cold sweat and say, I sure don't know what to do with you. Right? It's not going to happen. He is Elohim, your creator God. And so maybe the prayer on that note page there is just what you need today. Maybe this is just what you need. This is what you'll take away from the morning. A prayer that you can pray anytime. Elohim, you are my strong, powerful, infinitely more creator God. I trust you and I give you and you fill in the blank with whatever it is you want to fill in. I give that to you. It looks impossible to me, but nothing is impossible for you. Amen. Let's pray. Let's pray. Well, thank you, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, and Holy Spirit for the first chapter in the story, the great story, the story that you are writing, you have written and are writing right now. Thank you for this creation chapter in your story. Thank you for reminding us of these truths today and reminding us of how big you are. And Lord, I know in this room that's filled with this many people that there are some who are facing some really tough stuff, fearful, frightening, uncertain stuff, and and, and they just... They're at a loss. Oh, thank you for giving us your name today, Elohim. May we we use it often this week and talk to you often using your name. Thank you for being our creator God. Thank you for the story. And all God's people said, amen.